This podcast was produced by Morley Radio. Artcast is a podcast presented by Matt G, artist and subject leader of fine art at the Chelsea Centre at Morley College. This podcast was inspired by photographs taken from the polio outbreak in the 1940s where students were being remotely taught by radio. The podcast is a series of informal discussions with artists about their work and how they adapted in the crisis that we've lived through and their aim is to disseminate material for students by limiting screen time and providing information to take a break from the screen. This episode, I'm delighted to welcome Ethan from the Extended Diploma in Fashion. Hello. Good to have you here again. So Ethan was also here on episode one of this season. So I'm delighted to have for this episode Mira Kalix. Mira Kalix is an award-winning artist and composer signed to Warp Records, which is probably my favorite record label. And very excitingly, Mira has a new LP coming out very soon. In fact, 5th of November, and I believe this episode is due to be released uh, on the 10th of November. So five days ago, <laughs> this was uh, this, the LP was released. The new LP is called Absent Origin, the word absent being crossed out and the text all being in lowercase. The LP comes with a signed zine consisting of collages of pre-ordered mine. I'm very excited to get it. She's best known for eclectic and experimental music production, predominantly with electronic music, but the past two decades has incorporated classical music, recently doing a remix of John Cage, and recently incorporated performance multidisciplinary art. She says sound is considered a sculptural material, in 2003, she collaborated with the London Sinfonietta and Nunu premiered at the Royal Festival Hall and has gone on to create music for film, theatre and other performances for the Shakespeare Company, Manchester International Festival, Sydney Festival and the Royal Northern Sinfonia and more. The albums she creates are all titled in lowercase as a rejection of capitalism and we'll be discussing her work as an activist and a protester, which again, as with Russell last week, is a interesting topic for our foundation students who are currently doing a project on protest. As a live performer and DJ, Mira has uh, supported and toured with the likes of Radiohead, Boards of Canada or Tetra and other artists. She's performed at Sona, Glastonbury, All Tomorrow's Parties, Coachella, Latitude and other concert halls and festivals. She's got an incredibly long list of awards that can be seen on her website, and I've just got a handful to talk about here. So in December 2008, My Sacred Heart premiered at the Royal Festival Hall in London with 100 members of Streetwise Opera. The installation piece is a collaboration with British video artist Flat E. In December 2009, she won a British Composer Award for this piece and it was described by the judges as transformational capturing raw humanity and giving voice to the disenfranchised in a sound world which is original absorbing and unsettling and it also won a philharmonic society award in 2009 and was nominated for a national lottery award in 2010 and the installation toured in other countries uh, with the creators project and the british council so welcome. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for thanks for that 
that long and lovely introduction. I was like, oh my God, I have done those things. <laughs> Thank you. So I kick off like, all the episodes with this big question of what's your favourite colour? Uh, well, that really varies. At the moment, it's green. And so I have synesthesia and I, I, um, I'm very colour orientated and I tend to kind of immerse myself in a colour for two or three years. So it's a complicated answer to what should be a simple question. At the moment, I'm in green and I'm sort of coming out of green, and uh, but I never know what the next colour will be. And then I'm like a method artist. I, I actually... So when I did Inside Their Falls, I only wore white pretty much for that time. Um, when I did uh, Nothing Is Set in Stone, uh, I only kind of wore grey. <laughs> so the work and me and my thinking uh, becomes colour orientated and it tends to last sort of two to three years. So yeah, at the moment, I'm in green. I'm in green at the moment, yes. And um, your name... Uh, Mira Calix. That's not your original name, is it? I was wondering how it originated. Um, it isn't my original name, but it's actually the only name I use anymore. So it is my alias, and um, and I've become Mira Calix. Mira means observe or or look, and Calix is actually a bell-like shape. And um, so I picked this name for myself, but sort of accidentally, without really thinking it through i discovered that i'd call myself the holy grail or the miracle cup in miraculixa so actually if you if you so in asterix and obelix um the magician is get a fix but my first press day that i did in germany everyone was very excited my press officers because they knew they were like oh we know why you've called yourself miracalix and i was like why why and they went to the miracle cup miraculixa from asterix and obelix and i was like in English, get a fix. So yes, that was accidental. <laughs> that's the, that's the meaning of the name. And uh, calyx is part of a flower, uh, but it is this any bell-like shape. I remember being at an event in 2017. It was at Village Underground called Art Night, and I was wondering what's what you're more excited about in terms of performing. Is it mixing or producing? Oh, I definitely prefer to produce work. I think that's why I love the installation format. I don't really enjoy playing live and and you'll see over the years and and this recent Tate show that I've just um, shared with people I I'm not very interesting to look at live because I am just behind a laptop so I'm not someone using modular synthesis or I, I don't even I, I use almost nothing outboard um, for live live is more or less playback in, in my world um, and that tends to be because I'm I guess I'm more interested in creating the work and in installation work I'm really interested in using multi-channel diffusion and something that I've I think I've pioneered but maybe not which I call human diffusion so a lot of the work I do speakers are in fact within costumes or hidden in performers I do a lot of that most recently at the Tate they were carrying tape recorders but it was very lo-fi but I've used a lot of more complicated systems like at the Tower of London so that was about 100 performers wearing speakers and everything's being radio sent to them sort of in that case over weirdly also a kilometer and a half space so it's obviously my number but so live performance I like playing with orchestral musicians or create or working with dancers or other aspects I think to become to build an environment sorry this is a long answer so I'll be quiet but I do enjoy DJing and I think because DJing I'm still standing behind the laptop using tractor but oh there's a phone ringing uh, I'm going to go get it. Weirdly, I'm in a hotel room. Hold on one second. It's 
so I've lost my tension. At least I think I've finished it. Um, That's okay. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you started working with Warp. Um, I think it was 96. Uh, yes. So, yeah, I can do. So I started out, I was actually working in, so just sort of post being a student, I was working in mul- for multiple record labels and working in a record shop and running a zine with my then flatmates, one of which um, is now more well known as Strictly Kev uh, or DJ Food. So he was my flatmate who taught me to DJ, incidentally, because I accidentally became a DJ through him. And I used to call Warp to get records. In those days, we couldn't send an email. And and one day I called and they told me that the press officer at the time uh, had left. So I realised there was a job vacancy. <laughs> and I applied for the job with 400 other people. And I got the job. I'm sort of cutting this very short and landed up working at Warp for a few years as a press officer. And I was DJing a lot then, started making music and I played some of my tracks I was basically borrowed a lot of equipment from the other warp artists, full disclosure. So I think, uh, yeah, basically I had bits and bobs. Again, at that point, it was more drum machines and sort of physical things. Computing power was quite less than your current mobile phone. My first album was definitely less than your current mobile phone. So I played Steve some music and he loved it. And he said, let's release it. And it's one of the reasons I chose a pseudonym, because at the time that we released my first record, I was actually working in the office. I didn't want anyone to to know that that record was mine and it has a mirror board so you can see yourself on the cover um, and it was a limited edition of a thousand and I thought that was the only record I was ever going to make but then they offered me a deal and pushed me out the office and then here we are a lot later so that's kind of the story very short so uh, yeah, and usually I was inside and landed up on the outside of course in the meantime all the staff has changed and uh, lots of things have changed at Warp, but um, I am still signed to the label. Right. And in terms of like Warp working with people, have you got any stories about who any of the other Warp artists that you've worked with? I probably have, but I won't share them. Okay. <laughs> I'm saving that for the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm teasing. I'm not really. I think, you know, the big difference is that at that period of sort of talking late 90s or early 2000s we all performed together quite a lot so we toured together a lot mm. we did this warp glitch tour the seven-year glitch that was one of my ideas and I was still press officer at that point and so I think you know I was talking to Mark Pritchard the other day just via DMs you know we, we all go way back because at that point, the label was very much electronic music. It's diversified quite a lot. And so we were often on the same bills. But even with bands like Broadcast, you know, I would play. So when you did that introduction saying, in fact, I've toured with Chris Clark, we did an American tour together, kind of sharing the bill. You know, there is all this cross-pollination because I guess that area of music was, it was a kind of smaller circle. So us playing on each other's events or programming each other when we were curating things happened a lot. Yeah. And touring with people like Boards of Canada, which is pretty amazing because they tend to not play too much, I guess. I didn't tour with them. They've never toured. No, I played at their very first gig, which weirdly was at London School of Economics, I was thinking. And um, I played a few gigs with them and they did play, I think they... In fact, I've, I think I played all their gigs with them, coming to think of it. They played so few <laughs> as the warm-up DJ. And so they never actually toured. And the last gig I think they 
did was either the warp anniversary gig i think they really didn't enjoy playing live they, they didn't enjoy the live experience so yeah they've definitely never toured they're a band who played probably a handful of gigs in the entire um yeah and did you play with Apex Twin as I well? I played with Richard a lot of times. So, yeah, so that, yeah, and that would be at all, you know, again, that sort of goes back to that early cross pollination thing. So, we'd be on, we did a, I actually weirdly remembered the other day, a really strange gig at Ministry of Sound, which is the last place you'd expect to find us. But we, we played at all tomorrow's parties and we played at lots of different things together. And in fact, when I was running the zine, we were running these big ambient parties, the same group of people running the zine. And Richard at the time had only released Ambient Works 1. He hadn't done very much and he came to play at one of those for us along with Psychic Warriors of Gaia. So, yeah, we're talking going way, way back when we were still doing what nobody seems to do now, but we'll probably do again soon, big ambient squat parties and warehouses and stuff. Excellent. And you worked with the Royal Northern Symphonia last month to create yes. a piece that reflected the 18-month lockdown period since the last time they played at Sage Gateshead. How, yeah. how was that? It was, it, in many ways, it was a, a really great and easy collaboration with the conductor, Dinesh Souza, who's the new conductor, and he really wanted to mark this moment. He said he didn't want to come on stage and just kind of play Don Giovanni Overture. He wanted to create something that kind of looked, that marked this moment, exactly those were his words, and in doing so kind of reflected backwards and looked forward. They kind of started this, because it wasn't just a new, the beginning of a new concert, it was the beginning of a new season. It was the first time, uh, you know, this sort of 90-odd musicians, actually 70, would be all on stage together. And I really liked his attitude an approach and that's why I said yes to commission the collaboration itself was well it was difficult in many ways in that I was working with someone often in collaborations you just get put together and I was working with a filmmaker and Sarah's very lovely but she was also using sound and that actually became very difficult but it was two sets of people using sound so that had sort of issues that we had to work our way through together where one art form sort of leads leads into another one and it was a very unusual situation but the experience of working with them was great and I, I did like the fact that he wanted to mark this moment because I think it's very easy it will history will tell but you can even see in the way people are behaving if we don't record what's happened we don't mark it it will strangely be lost from our memory so that seemed very important to me and I liked his his approach to this yeah so it's sort of yeah flagging up a part of history that we're living through yes but if you, unless you take your, the time to record it it's amazing how quickly we forget things I think this may be a question of yours so I may be jumping in here ahead but at the beginning of the first lockdown I think in around April May I made a piece called The Lazy River and um, it's an audio visual work and came it basically was a free track if you bought I was very early in April um, 2020 I released a collection of face masks Still going strong. Yeah, I was about to bring that and, up. I'm still yeah. using them, and so that 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 had was a charitable endeavor. But um, having done a lot of work in China, I was already wearing masks pre-lockdown, and I was very used to wearing them. And I'd done a lot of reading, and I I very strongly believe the data that shows how good they are at preventing not just COVID, but 
basically uh, colds and flus and so forth. And so we were seeing all that data. So I was a big advocate for mask wearing. And so I made some collage masks and I made this collage piece. And the piece itself is kind of nutty. But what it was really, and you can find it, I think, on my Vimeo or, or on YouTube. I'm not sure if I put it there, but it's definitely on my Vimeo. What I was really focusing on was the sudden use of all these words that entered our kind of colloquial dictionary. So suddenly we're using things like R rating or social distancing. Like there was this prevalence of like new language that we adopted like very, very quickly. And I, I wanted to sort of mark that moment of like how this, all these words had like entered our discourse like Oh, it's seemingly overnight. Zoom is another one, hilariously. I mean, it's a piece of software, but, you know, Zoom is now a verb and you and I are, are talking on Zoom. And so there was all these words and like all these things flying around. And so I made this audiovisual work. It'll be a testament to that moment where we were really quiet, but all I felt like I was really quiet in my own life and the streets were quiet, but actually the noise coming from... Uh, the internet was so loud and it was all these kind of warnings or just or just like really intense scientific information a lot for people to grapple with yeah now it's interesting you mentioned that culturally you were you've been used this idea of mask wearing it was actually because I, I purchased a lot of stuff off bleep and it was actually one of the first face masks that I purchased and one of the things that struck me when I received it was and then I was, I think I was probably one of the only people at the supermarket wearing, wearing a face mask. <laughs> but one of the things that struck me about it was it was accompanied with a small card as well, which had a really yeah. clear graphic on why you wear them. Because there was this, at the time, of, I guess, a preconception of, you know, only people that had COVID would wear a mask. But it was this yeah. idea of that you have to all wear them for it to make a difference. And it was really clear in that graphic. So for yeah. me, that, that was part of the work as well, that really clear dissemination of information. Um, oh well thank you for buying one and yeah it, masks were really hard to get at that point a friend of mine actually had sent me a load from china she couriered them uh, from shanghai in march going you must have some and i had a few and then hence making these masks and they, they were produced here and I, I packed each one myself wearing little gloves <laughs> and everything so i hand packed them um and but they were hard to get. And, you know, that's, again, it's easy to forget that we were like, um, we couldn't get hand sanitizer. Um, we couldn't, get, you know. So, yeah, these things mark a moment, which, again, we forget. I just walked past the sign. I mean, Covent Garden and said, we sell hand sanitizer here. And I literally just thought, oh, my God, I remember when we were like pushing each other in the elbow for hand sanitizer. Mm. It was it, people were making homemade hand sanitizer. And so mm. these things, uh, humans are so adaptable. We forget this stuff very quickly. Mm. So the lazy river, if you don't know what it is, Google it. It's a very interesting thing. It is actually a thing. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I was trying to mark that moment or, ca or capture that moment. I think I didn't overthink it at the time, but it's such a phenomena that we've been through. And I think if you, but it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to then readapt and like now we're adapting to another world order and another world order and another world order. So, yeah. And then collage is really prevalent in your work. Is that something that's always been prevalent or something you've really enjoyed or is it something you picked up recently? Um, no, I've I've been collaging, I think my whole life in some shape or form, and I've been collaging in relation to music um, for a long time. But then about, I think, 2017, I started this We Portal project, 
um, and I was doing live performances online. Now, obviously, the staple of the entire lockdown, but nobody was doing it then. It was the, I did it the moment Facebook uh, finally gave us that application to do Facebook Live. So I saw early adopter. And then I started sharing my collages on my portal, which is basically a shop. Um, but before then, I'd just done them and not shared them. So they, the physical analog collage has always been there. In, uh, in lockdown, I started doing more Photoshop collage and the album sleeve is actually a combination. It is all analog collages um, that I didn't even think at the time were going to be on my sleeve. I was just, while I was making music, I was making collages and I was also making big scrapbooks from newspaper cuttings and um, things, again, kind of collating or making sense of that strange period the collages there's a lot of mini me's I call them the dollies just in the idea of paper dolls I've sort of kind of uh, reinterpreted myself thematically according to the different tracks and it was a way of me working through the music and in the end it seemed obvious that that should become the sleeve but audio collage has always been there in my work because I do use audio I don't really use synthesizers very much uh, very little um I've, uh, audio has always been my my um modus operandus when I'm working electronically this yeah so that's a long answer for yes and do, do you produce the videos as well? Yeah. The, the sort of animations. <laughs> oh, great. I did cool. it all. <laughs> um, the the animation for Transport Me, the the most recent release, that actually was done in collaboration with Ollie Duke. So I should say he helped turn my 2D into 3D. So I'm not a 3D maker, but the the video for There's Always a Girl in the Secret is with a secret. I did everything, every stop frame, crazy ass thing, sort of film, filmed it on green screen. So that was a bit of a lockdown project and kind of painstakingly making each stop frame in Photoshop and then re-editing it. So yeah, layer by layer. And you talked about how you don't necessarily use synthesizers. I was wondering if you could talk about this idea of using like found sounds, I guess, in a way, the same way that a visual artist might use found objects. I heard once that you used like insect sounds and wasp sounds. Yes, I think when you were doing the introduction, Nunu, that piece that we were talking about, World Festival Hall, that actually is just a piece made out of insect sounds. Um, they were recorded in an anechoic chamber. So it's things like uh, sort of a butterfly coming out of a pupa and like very close sounds and then also some bigger sounds of insects. And that piece I perform with live insects on stage. It, I must point out in a fish tank I mean they're not crawling all over the stage and they have little cameras and little microphones on them but I've used found sound as we call it or field recordings I mean interestingly it has a lot of names and I guess it does have a lot of correlations with with visual arts but I've used that since the beginning and my original motivation wasn't philosophical or conceptual it was because I didn't have any money and I was like oh I can just go record stuff because that's free and so I just started recording at that point I was recording with little um, dictaphones I used to always have a dictaphone in my pocket and then eventually that became digital you know mini disc and digital recorders and now I use a zoom a different kind of zoom and so I was just doing that and then I was processing it. And of course, in the beginning, processing power was smaller, so it was much more simple. Um, I made an album called Skim Skitter and the entire, pretty much all the, you know, all the percussion on that album is made from pebbles. So just using different pebbles. So these things were just tools. I do like to be out and about. And I guess it's also an antithesis of being in a studio. 
And I, and I think because I work electronically, capturing oxygen or air has always been important. On my first album, I just put a microphone in a shoebox and hung it out the window. There was always, look, always looking to, to capture air and oxygen and, and kind of real things in what's quite a digital domain, which maybe makes me a little bit unusual in, in that world. A lot of electronic artists have been motivated by creating new kinds of sound and they do incredible work where they're really looking at synthesis and, and I admire and like a lot of it. I think I've always looked at my door. Your listeners will know what that is, but um, I use Cubase predominantly. You know, I've always looked at it as kind of a big mixer, a big tape recording machine. And so audio and sampling has been the way that I've built things rather than the other modes of, of electronic music. Since like, you do so many different things, when you meet new people, what do you tell them you do? That's such a good, I mean, that's such a good question because it's really difficult for me. And I had to do it this morning and so I've whittled it down. I mean, at first I used to say all sorts of things and it, I remember at one point I eventually started being pushed by someone. I eventually started calling myself a composer and that felt like a big deal. And then I just thought, screw it. I'm just going for the big umbrella. So I say artist um, and now I tend to say artist, composer or artist and composer just to kind of sort of show those lines because those lines have got more blurred since I started. So uh, when I started, I was pretty much an electronic a musician with huge ambition. <laughs> so, but I'd come from studying dance. So I'd come from other art forms. I think what's important in this is unlike you guys, I'm completely self-taught. So I learned to read and write music, uh, self-taught and I now write in notational school I learned to do electronic music self-taught and so the things I studied I've used in my work but probably all in the wrong way around and so it also had imposter syndrome which we all suffer from you know so calling yourself a composer felt like whoa uh, and but I think artist is kind of the easiest and there may be some subcategories if Social media is anything to go by. I think it says artist, composer, human, which probably just about covers the basics. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you've made actual sculptures before, haven't you? So, like, obviously, site specific installations, but you've, you make sculpture as well. Yes, I have made. I've made sound sculptural work. I've done. I mean, it may be hard for people to follow the trajectory, but I think, especially because I also not only do I change mediums and materials. But I also changed what a lot of people would consider genres in that I did the completely scored with no electronics piece for the Royal Northern Symphonia. And a week later, I did the Tate, which was, you know, elements from my album, but also had a live performance, which, again, was purely notated with a soprano and some semaphore flags. So I am really mixing and matching these things. And for some people, that's hard to follow. But for me, it feels really natural. It's where my interests lie. I guess I'm, I like to be moving all the time. And that the connection for me is this kind of world building. Everything else is just a tool or a mode of communicating the thing I'm really keen to communicate. And that in itself asks the question as to, is this going to be a piece made with pebbles or 
some moogs, moogs, or a soprano, if that makes sense. I've been, I love technology and I love tools, but I always see them as tools. Like, it's kind of like, am I going to use pencils or crayons? And this piece needs to be in color, so I'm going to use crayons. So that's been my approach, maybe, which also means I'm always learning on the job. Because if I need to use something and don't know how to use it, then I need to go and figure out how to use it. With uh, like your different projects and different genres, are they reactionary to each other? Or are they on like a certain It's part? another really good question. That's a really hard question. <laughs> Um, no, I think they do fit. Like, strangely, this is a good recent example. So I wrote this piece for Rosie Middleton, The Soprano, um, which is how we opened the tape piece. And it's just her and some semaphore flags, and you can hear a Morse code. It, but it's very it's quite a strange piece because it's all written in code and um, it sort of would fit into kind of new contemporary classical music genre, I guess, if someone had to put it in a genre and, you know, or file it in a record shop. But it links so closely to the album, which is purely electronic. And the elements of collage in the first work, but not really, but the two things link. So I guess most of the time things are connected or I find a way to make them so. I guess the strange thing is that quite often what I'm doing is is commissioned, like we did have a remit for the Royal Northern Symphonia piece and you'd say, well, what is the connection between that and the album? But it's maybe a way of thinking or what I'm exploring and yet those things, like I said, but that connected to the Lazy River, which was the collage work, which connects to the album. So in a time period, things may have a very different outcome, but probably in my thinking as an artist, they are connected, but they're not necessarily obvious. So it takes me to explain it. I'm aware of the fact that looking from the outside, I can seem very like disjunctive and disjointed, but from in my own mind, <laughs> I'm totally um, the, the connections are very clear, but I think because they, when it comes to sound in particular, people like to classify you in those record store conventions, and I just don't quite fit anywhere. And when I was probably the age Ethan is, that used to bother me a lot. Like I was always on the outside. And then especially I do very, I'd be performing at very experimental gigs and I'd be like the straightest person on the bill so I'd be playing with like Sarko people and Mego people like Panasonic they were all brilliant but I played a lot with those kind of highly experimental people Coil and so forth and I'd be like the straight one and then I'd go and play with other group of people and I'd be the real weirdo and I struggled with like why do I never fit and then I did have a moment I think I was sitting in bed one day and I kind of realized I never fitted because I was deliberately <laughs> mucking things up for myself and actually I was really should be quite happy with that because clearly I was doing that to myself you know but I think at first I thought, oh, I thought it was an outside view of me, but then I realized actually it was an internal view and I was actually genuinely comfortable with it. But I did wrestle with it at the beginning. No, I know what you mean. People kind of strive to comfortably file people and genres. But I think there's something very, as a music goer, and that's very cognitively appealing is something that's unpredictable. And I'm really big fan of, well, not a big fan of the term, but IDM, intelligent dance music, this idea of yeah 
glitchy music that sort of shifts our perceptions and sort of provokes sports and creates weird juxtapositions. I was listening to one of your boiler room sets. I had like, I think it was Nathan Fake mixed with Fine, fine Young camp Cannibals. Yeah, which is just like completely threw me but it was great because it's like something I hadn't heard yeah and a lot of that comes from early DJing I always mixed crazy stuff together and again that's become more common I think when I started in the 90s people just thought she's lost it but I (laughs) always did it and it, it kind of came from I grew up in a place where um, I grew up in South Africa. Getting music was very hard and very expensive. Again, pre-internet, mm. it used to get shipped in. We'd get it late, and what? And and so I learned to love. And we did a lot of mixtape swapping. And I learned to love lots of different kinds of music. I was never a purist, and so different things sitting together felt very natural to me because nobody even our DJs nobody had enough of a particular genre of music and so even a DJ on a night out the night out would progress roughly every hour because no one really ever had enough of no one could play techno all night at that point nobody had enough of those records and so that really informed this kind of John Peel eventually I, I learned you know I listened to John Peel who was like a pioneer of that and so it does mean sometimes you hate what's playing but you kind of know that somewhere in there is going to be something brilliant but there are some odd fits so yeah that juxtaposition school of free-flowing DJing is probably yeah it's the same approach in my work making and and I like it I like being open to something just being brilliant and not what box does it fit in and that goes same for visual art you know in all art forms it's yeah, it, it's a very non-purist approach, but it means you're you're going on aesthetics and instinct, I guess, if you really like something. Yeah. Yeah. And how important is it that people dance to your music? I dance to all my music, even the stuff that you think I wouldn't dance to. So I do dance in the studio. And anyone who follows me on Instagram is good sort of has to suffer my dancing videos, of which I do make quite a few. I really like to dance, I guess, because I I studied ballet very seriously. I like moving. It's a great way of dealing with sort of mental difficulties. I really use dance and I I like it and it's fun. And so I am dancing in the studio. I'm quite well known for writing very unusual rhythm patterns. And that's what I mean. But for some reason, I can always find the one. It's my own music. (laughs) And so I really like things that kind of, uh, as my mum said, sound like things falling down the stairs. But that's that's a happy rhythm. But it also does mean I, you know, I listen to things like Beyonce, you know. So I, again, I'm really open, and I do. Yeah, I think dancing is important, even if the only place you dance is, you know, at home in your kitchen. Mm. Yeah, there's been a lot of that. Yeah, there's been a lot of that. that in fact, mm. that became a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there are other people who love to dance. Yeah, I think I think it's good for your head as well as your body. Um, yeah. I was just wondering if you have any like a certain way of dressing when you're creating art, and does it di- like differ between when you're making music or sculpture? It's a good question. I read Charlie Porter's book in lockdown. Did you read it? Are you nodding, Ethan? Yeah, I mentioned uh, the last time. I mean, I really love that book. I think I read it very quickly, like two days or a day. In I was actually sitting on a lounger. Um, It was one of those sunny days, and I just I didn't mean to fly through it, but I did. I thought it was such an interesting book. I think the book is called "What Do Artists Wear" by Charlie Porter. Um, Recommended Mm. reading, and um, 
I wear some strange things when I'm making music. I know there are some photos in the studio where for some reason I'm wearing a sequin dress and a bobble hat. So that's, I will post that at some point. It makes no sense. But I decided because it was lockdown and my life was very unglamorous that I was going to start wearing sequins to the studio. And along with Laura Canal, we ordered some sequin things, I think from ASOS and basically then bedecked ourselves in our studios, which obviously was ridiculous, but it was because we weren't going anywhere. For the most part, like most people, I think I'm wearing quite comfortable things. And I'm a big fan of like asymmetry. I like things like Marnie very much. Oh, it's a baby sister and cheaper sister cause. So I quite like things that are free flowing. And like I mentioned before, color is probably the most important thing. So I will be wearing particular colors when I'm working, probably more than anything else. I can sometimes or quite often dress like a teenage boy. I mean, as an, yeah, I like a lot of comfortable, free-flowing, asymmetrical things. And I am known to wear a hoodie maybe too often. So, yes, I don't know if that answers that question. Sorry. So it is, it is like thought through occasionally, like what you said with the sequin and stuff. Yes, I mean, that was a specific, I think because we were talking about lockdown, I think that was a specific reaction, you know, to just never going anywhere. So suddenly I was wearing... I was wearing sort of lots of silk dress. I, I was dressing up to walk across the courtyard to go to the studio, which is bizarre. And I've never done that before. But I think that was because I was never going anywhere. And so all these kind of party dresses, for want of a better word, were just sort of hanging there. So I started wearing them to the studio. But then practicality would kick in like a bubble hat. So, you know, obviously if anyone had seen me, it look very strange. Um, but that was particular to this very strange moment. And I was writing this album in lockdown. So normally I would say I'm, I'm wearing things, yeah, in that kind of loose fitting. I have less of a uniform, probably more chameleon-like than some of those artists in that book. And that would also connect with my kind of many contradictions in, you know, in work-wise, if that makes sense. But like I said, yeah, I, I love things like... Um, uh, Izzy Miyaki. I like uh, I like interesting designs. So yes, when I can, that is generally. Does that make sense? I like I like things that looks like yeah and looks like somebody thought about it even if it's a tiny detail a weird pocket or the the cut of something I do like clothes very much and some artists don't care about clothes I'd say I'm I'm one of those people who cares about clothes and in particular footwear like I'm slightly obsessed with shoes actually anyone who knows me would say that's not true I'm really obsessed with shoes and so lockdown was difficult as well because there was nowhere to wear shoes to so again I started wearing shoes just for the hell of it, you know, but going nowhere. Was the decision to do the new LP because of the the crisis that we were in, in terms of having lots of time? Because I know a lot of musicians maybe had more time to do that. I mean, some <laughs> some of them were playing gigs in places where there was no restrictions, which we won't go into that now. But like um, yeah. some used the time very productively. Do you think that's something that, do you think the album would have been there if, if, if we hadn't lived through this time? No, probably not. I had the idea for the album in 2018 when I was working on the Tower of London project because I was looking into the First World War, as we mentioned, and, and I was looking a lot at geopolitics, especially in relation to Brexit, the similarities between the 
great divisions that run in this country and America, Italy and so forth, at this moment in time is parallels with the First World War. And when you start looking at that, you get to the, you go back to the Dadaists, Hannah Hock, uh, Raoul Hausmann, and you start looking at Max Ernst and how Duchamp, all these people, um, their, where they lived, how they lived, were so dependent on geopolitics. So all these things were playing, had a, were very much in my mind, along with this phrase, um, this Picasso phrase, he was talking to Francois Gillot, and he's an artist in her own right, and who appears in Utopia, a record I did in 2019. But he was talking to her about the birth of collage, because of course collage existed for hundreds of years before, but the contemporary version of collage, and he said, the world was a very strange place and not exactly reassuring. And he was talking about those grumblings of the First World War, and this kind of starting to use things like pieces of newspaper um, later became more random things like bus tickets, but bringing politics into work in, in the collage vein. And then lockdown happened and I was grounded. I mean, I'm normally someone who's never in the same place very long. And I didn't actually start working straight away. I was finishing projects that hadn't been, the ones that hadn't been cancelled for the first six months. And then I actually just paused completely and I didn't do anything. I just made scrapbooks. And, but I started doing research. And so I thought, okay, I'll go and maybe I can do this collage album. So this was in summer 2020. And what I really started doing was I went looking for a great collage documentary and I couldn't find one. And that not finding one led me down a path where I started looking at individual artists and they really became the blueprint for this album, but totally inadvertently. I knew from the beginning the album would be called Absent Origin, which is very unusual for me. It had a title right from the off and the connected, the kind of the sort of um, double meaning of absent origin in politics and in, in geopolitics and in when we talk about in collage when the original piece of paper you've cut something from is lost in analog collage in photoshop there is no absent origin it's always kind of you can always undo and so so no the album wouldn't have happened and wouldn't have happened in this way without pausing because I would have been on a residency or, or I had loads of things lined up for last year and what we're seeing like certainly on Warp is a pretty much an album coming out a week and there will be like this till 2022 because all of us were hyper productive because it's not so much that I was touring uh, but we all had to stop and some people baked bread great some people picked up you know other things and I guess eventually a lot of us made albums and so the fruits of that labor will yeah, you will be seeing it for the next, we've already seen it and, you know, we will see it for the next year. The same, yeah, the same pause also caused a problem with vinyl. So actually, <laughs> records are dripping out, uh, you know, <laughs> due, due to a lack of resources. Yeah, yeah and you'll be hearing uh, records in, in clubs that have been produced like two years ago, but uh, just being heard for the first time. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, actually I know from Bleep and then I guess we should probably round up, but Bleep is a online record store is affiliated with Warb and we were doing the mass through them. Like 
they had a boom in lockdown. People really were buying music, which is lovely. Actually, they weren't just streaming it. I'm sure they were doing that too. But um, they actually opened a new warehouse. So people were buying objects and we couldn't go anywhere. So people were spending money in a different way. And I think a lot of people really went to the arts, went to film and reading, like me and Ethan reading, reading that Charlie Porter book. You know, like people, I was doing audibles um, and I like the idea of this project that is away from screen time. I, I like to walk. And so I was walking and listening to a book every day. So that was my sort of coping strategy. And it also meant I really like to read, but I'm lazy. As in, I could sort of double up what I was doing. I could be walking and reading, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, we've all found different ways. I think the one thing probably before we sort of round up that I would say is, and what's unique of this period is that it is global. And so that whoever's listening to this from wherever they are in the world, we've all experienced some version of this. And so we have been alone together and together alone. We have been through something truly phenomenal and we have all experienced some version of of this thing, whether we're in the African, you know, in the global South and the African continent or in Western Europe or in America, you know, we have all been through this thing. And so modes of creativity have really been explored in this period, either as consumers of that creativity or creators of that creativity. Yeah, great. I just wanted to ask a little bit about your sort of relationship with protesting and how that, that, that the world of your world of activism began. Because <laughs> obviously our students at the moment are doing a project on it. Yes. And yeah, just and, and any ideas of how we can overcome apathy really? Because I think that's apathy seems to be sort of the, the risk involved if people tend to maybe feel a bit powerless, they might sort of shift towards that. Towards nothingness. There's a great, yeah. there's a great um, little article which uh, it's I think in the comments free section in the Guardian. You'll find it online, written by someone, group of people, 27 years old, who set up, I mean, kind of an extraordinary thing in Switzerland to counteract, like a group, a loose group of people to counteract nationalism and populism. And I'd recommend everyone going to find this as to how you fight that uh, from within. In Switzerland, they famously have a referendum every few weeks. So the entire population is very involved in politics, even if they're trying to be apathetic. But they were trying mm. to change the narrative. I think you don't all need me to say it's very easy to tweet. I do that um, and feel like you've done something or sign a petition. But mm. I think uh, if anything, we should look to history and be more French. Get out there and make a noise. I think it's not in the British nature to make a fuss, and that could be Britain's undoing. Make a fuss. Like, make a fuss. Americans were great. You know, the minute the Donald Trump <laughs> ruling came in to kind of stop people from the Middle East flying in, they just went to the airport and <laughs> stopped. They go to their... Um, House of Representatives and do sit-ins, all these things that people used to do in the 1960s and 70s where people show up, it works. Governments hate it when you make a fuss. They actually keeping us on social media. And I think social media, and I post a lot, is very good for signposting things or flag posting things, but actually making a fuss and bothering your representatives. And I mean that in a peaceful way, that's their job. Like, all, if you're in Britain, MPs have surgeries, show up and talk to them, write letters. Legally, they have to respond to your email. So email them, waste their time and bring up those things. Like 
do things. And of course, sharing things on social media is useful because I notice things that I might have missed. And it's the other thing is it's impossible to stay on top of everything and everyone will have causes closest to their heart. So try and support your brothers and sisters in their cause, you know, in a coalition of the willing or the coalition of the, the awake. And but also understand that other people may not care about your cause as much as you do. And so you have to convert them. The last thing I don't really stick to because I shout at trolls and I shout a lot, but apparently you're not supposed to shout. And the easiest way to convince people is a softly, softly approach. But I'm kind of done with that. And I actually think show up, make a fuss, knock on the door. And especially at the moment where I think we may lose the right or or people may lose the right to protest. You need to protest Mm -hmm. that. Like protest is a basic fundamental human right. You should be able to express your opinion, even if it's a minority opinion. Talking about the policing bill. The The, policing bill, yes. And also, you know, it doesn't, I have to say I'm not an anti-vaxxer, clearly, but I have to admire the fact that they are protesting. I Does that make sense? As in, yeah. I think people being willing to show up and make a fuss is a good thing. because mm. the, ev- the stickers everywhere around there. Stickers, well. <laughs> yeah, there's stickers everywhere. And, you know, we did the same for the, for you know, there's lots of anti-Brexit stickers and so forth. And I think all those things, whatever your political viewpoint, and I, like I said, I happen to disagree with that one, but I do admire their vocalization um, of what they think and that and and they've been effective has you know on the other hand more aligned to my politics so have extinction rebellion they made a fuss you know they closed some streets they made people notice so I think in your own small way and if you're not someone who wants to stand out on the street write letters like it's yeah. so old school write emails but honestly they work because you, people have to respond, and, and we forget that, and also they're working for you, so they have to respond to you. There's so, that website, they work for you. They work well. for you, exactly. And then you can get the email address of yeah, uh, an AB, which is, and constructively write to them, yeah. as opposed to sort of messaging yeah. each other in a, in a echo chamber. In a, in a echo chamber. write to the people. That yeah, write to the people who are there. bothering you and hold mm-hmm. them to account. And like I said, they have to respond to you. And if they don't, bother them until they do. So, you know, make people pay attention to you. Yeah, I'd say that would be my closing statement. Raise awareness of issues in your own network, but make a fuss and, and like, be more French. The French famously, when they were protesting, you know, went and dropped a whole bunch of poo outside their parliaments. Like, um, and that's always been my sort of slogan, more mad, less Brexit, you know, because that's my personal, the thing that I care about probably that and refugees and how we deal with refugees are like my, the issues that touch me a lot. But everyone has their own. But, yeah, think, think of the French. I mean, they changed the course of history by protesting, like they literally created modern democracy. So I think, you know, it's in their spirit um, and we need to to do that more in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Cool. Um, Can that be yeah, my, that is that my closing words? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, thanks very much to Ethan. And thanks, Neil. Ethan. They were good questions. Um, make sure you listen to Absent Origin as well. It's going to be great. 
Thanks. Looking forward to receiving my vinyl. <laughs> thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for ordering Thanks so it. much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks to both of you. Oh, where is my camera? I will wave at you now. There we go. <laughs> um, that was easier for me not looking at me, actually. Um, and I really <laughs> appreciate this. Um, thanks so much. Morley Radio Drama is an exhilarating and unique course that offers students the chance to write, perform and record their own scripts here on Morley Radio. The course is taught by writer Cara Jennings and myself, director, Julia Lewis. You can listen to our previous students' plays here on Morley Radio. Just search Radio Drama. For more information on the course and enrolment, visit morleycollege.ac.uk and search for Morley Radio Drama.